You're listening to Heart Sounds from the Pulse of Cardiology. Hello, and welcome to the September edition of Heart Sounds. Honestly, I don't know where the time went. When I was packing my bags for the ESC meeting last month, my part of the world smelled like a campfire, thanks to the worst wildfire season on record. Fast forward a few weeks and we're dealing with snowfall warnings for the high mountain passes. I feel like I haven't even eaten enough tomatoes. Partly the weeks are flying by because the fall meeting season is upon us. The TCTMD news team spent the first week of September wrapping up our coverage of ESC, only to plunge right into Viva and London valves. Let's take a listen. You might subscribe to the idea that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Quite the contrary, TCTMD's Laura McEwen, who covered this year's Viva meeting, had plenty to share with readers. Find it all via the conference tab on our homepage. One of Laura's stories challenged the long-held belief that women with abdominal aortic aneurysm fare worse than men after endovascular AAA repair. In fact, two registry studies presented at Viva confirmed that yes, anatomical differences between men and women are indisputable. Also, that women are more often treated outside of device instructions for use. But when hard outcomes post-procedure between men and women were compared in these studies, no obvious differences were found. Jennifer Ash from the Christie Clinic Vein and Vascular Center in Champaign, Illinois, presented 30-day results from the 225-patient Lucy study. Half of the patients in Lucy were women, and the study tested the low-profile ovation stent graft. Here's Ash summing up the key results from Lucy. In conclusion, women have traditionally demonstrated limited eligibility and far worse outcomes in endovascular repair of aneurysms. And so this trial is the first prospective trial to specifically evaluate endovascular repair of aneurysms in women head-to-head at a more realistic proportion, uh, women versus men. And what we found, at least in the early 30-day results, is that women and men treated with this device experienced similar outcomes, both procedurally and also at the 30-day mark for major adverse events. There were low rates of endo leaks at 30 days, which is also very promising. Uh, And so overall, I think this demonstrates that there is a potential for women to fare as well as men in terms of treatment of abdominal aortic aneurysm. As I told you last month, Todd Neal, Michael O'Reardon, and I were at the ESC Congress in August, and some of our coverage from that meeting inevitably spilled over into September. I hope you'll check out the rest of our ESC stories. Todd Neal took some time to take a deeper look at the COMPASS trial results from ESC. As you must know by now, COMPASS showed that a combination of a 2.5 milligram twice-daily dose of rivaroxaban on top of low-dose aspirin reduced the risk of a composite of cardiovascular death, MI, or stroke compared with aspirin alone. But, no surprise, it also increased the risk of major bleeding. Todd reached out to a range of people for his feature story. First up, have a listen to Aaron Mikos from Johns Hopkins in Baltimore talking about the overall COMPASS results, then how she thinks they might be used in practice. On average, the group had more benefit than harm. But, you know, an individual patient that you see in the clinic is not going to be the average patient. So I think we'll have to take these results and there'll be certain patients, you know, whether it's based on age, whether it's based on low body mass index, whether it's based on history of prior stroke, um, well, you know, we need to figure out, you know, which do more work, figure out which groups are the ones where there's more harm than benefits. 
Um, we need something like a DAP score for rivaroxaban uh, to take these and individualize it to the patient. So I, you know, anticipate going forward that, you know, I think this will be incorporated in future guidelines. And if so, I certainly would consider adding this on in secondary prevention patients. But I, I think you need to individualize it to each patient. Todd also spoke with the Cleveland Clinic Stephen Nissen, who, unlike others interviewed for the story, does not think that FDA approval for this new indication is a given. Nissen reminded Todd that the Atlas ACS2 TIMI51 trial, looking at patients with ACS, also showed that a twice daily dose of rivaroxaban reduced cardiovascular events. But after the Atlas trial results were reviewed by the FDA and found to have problems with patient follow up, the FDA's advisory panel ultimately recommended that the agency not approve the new indication. Here's Nissen. That's why I'm being cautious here, is that on those issues of loss to follow-up and so on just weren't so apparent, you know, in that trial when, you know, it was published. But when we got to the FDA panel and we saw some of the quality problems with the trial, you know, we ended up voting no. And you don't know what's going to happen, you know, you, when you go to an FDA panel and, uh, you know, this one is stronger than Atlas in terms of the p-values, but there, you know, the FDA is going to do a deep dive on this, and we'll have to see how they interpret the results. So I think, you know, this is not, you know, should not be interpreted as a slam dunk. And I would be very unequivocal in saying that the study did not meet the statistical requirement for showing efficacy on mortality. I am going out on a limb here, but this podcast may be the last time, at least for a while, that we talk about the Absorb Bioresorbable Scaffold. This follows Abbott's decision earlier this month to yank the product, citing low commercial sales. That news wasn't much of a surprise to people that TCTMD reporter Michael O'Reardon polled, many of whom pointed out that the device was hardly being implanted, even in regions where its use was not restricted to the research setting. Sunil Rao of Duke University Medical Center in Durham made the point that next-generation devices still deserve study, but they face much higher hurdles, given all the bad press faced by Absorb. I think not only do they have to, um, does the new platform have to compete against existing metallic stems, it has to overcome the limitations of the prior generation. I think as well as the sort of negative connotations and, and negative perceptions of about the first generation that uh, the, the interventional community has had. In, in the past, with the development of stents and then diluting stents, I think there was a little more tolerance for early technology and, and the pitfalls that that brings with it because there was a clear problem that these newer technologies were designed to fix. Bare metal stents clearly were addressing uh, abrupt closure. Diluting stents were clearly addressing restenosis. You know, I think BRS, it's a little bit more hazy as to exactly what the clinical problem is that these things are designed to address. Now, the optimist in me says, well, maybe we should be looking at long-term vascular function and use a time horizon similar to what the cardiac surgeons do. One of the things that the international community, I think, has been accused of, and probably rightfully so, is that we tend to focus on six-month and nine-month, maybe even one-year outcomes, whereas the cardiac surgeon says, Look, my, I'm, we're looking at 10-year outcomes, 20-year outcomes, and maybe that's the time horizon we should all be thinking about is PCI. In that context, maybe the newer generation's BRS will have some kind of benefit.
On the other hand, Greg Stone from New York Presbyterian Hospital and Columbia University, who is the chair for the Global Absorb Clinical Trial Program, has remained stalwart in his belief that these devices are the wave of the future. I still strongly believe in bioresorbable scaffold technology. This first generation device, it's got you know, thicker struts, it's got limited expansion capability, you have to size um, the vessel quite accurately, you've got to really prepare the lesion, uh, routinely post-dilate, and again, more frequently use intravascular imaging, so it, it, there clearly is a requirement for the operator to pay more attention to what they're doing to implant, absorb, getting maximal scaffold dimension, avoiding malapposition, so you can get good um, intermediate phase results within the first couple of years, so then potentially the long-term benefits of, of absorb after it's complete bioresorption at approximately three years can be realized. Adnan Chatrawala had an interesting take on Abbott's decision to pull the plug on absorb, saying maybe physicians have some grounds here for patting themselves on the back. Have a listen. One perspective on this is that, you know, a lot of times physicians get a bad rap. We've published some, some studies that have been critical of physicians. You know, mm -hmm. physicians have a reputation of, you know, maybe not caring about costs and, you know, using whatever they think um, is, is better or best, uh, even if there's not necessarily evidence to show that it's better or best and mm -hmm. not really caring about uh, the costs associated with it. And here we have a situation where, you know, where you know, maybe we should praise physicians for being hard uh, on Abbott or for being hard on the technology. Let's switch gears to address another topic that's been spiking debate in cardiology circles long before anyone first started talking about dissolving stents or direct oral anticoagulants. Earlier this month, TCTMD's Caitlin Cox covered a study in JAMA looking at 18 years of follow-up in the two Women's Health Initiative trials of hormone replacement. Those trials enrolled more than 27,000 women between the ages of 50 and 79 in the mid-1990s. Both were stopped early. The first, which studied daily estrogen plus progestin, was halted due to an increased risk of breast cancer. The other, looking at estrogen alone, was stopped due to a heightened risk of stroke. In this long-term follow-up, however, Joanne Manson and colleagues found that for both HRT regimens, the risks of all-cause mortality were similar in the hormone therapy and placebo groups, as were cardiovascular and cancer mortality. Melissa McNeil from the University of Pittsburgh wrote an editorial accompanying the study, Here's part of her conversation with Caitlin. What we know about hormone therapy is that the risks and benefits um, really take a long time to see and require large, large numbers of women to be in the study. Those studies are just financially untenable in this current climate. So clinicians are going to need to make decisions with the information we have. Um, I think the real take-home message is that in the 70s, hormones were, were good for everybody. In after the Women's Health Initiative, we said they were poison and no one should take them. And now the take-home message is for the right patient, at the right time of her life, hormones can be considered safe and effective, both in the short term and the long term. Here's another long-simmering topic that is showing signs of cooling off. 
TCTMD's Yael Maxwell covered the New England Journal of Medicine publication of three trials looking at PFO closure for cryptogenic stroke. We've actually written about all three of these studies before. Reduce, close, and the long-term follow-up from RESPECT are all trials that TCTMD wrote about when they were presented at meetings last year. Experts who spoke with Yael, however, say that seeing these trials in print, all of them supporting a role for device closure over medical management alone, will make this news more likely to sink in. It may also change a few minds. Stephen Messe of the University of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia was the neurologist who led the 2016 American Academy of Neurology Guidelines, which advised against routine PFO closure. The guidelines also strongly urge physicians to educate their patients about just how common PFOs are in the general population and how rarely they contribute to stroke. Speaking with Yael this month, Messe acknowledged that the publication of these three trials has helped him shift his views. I hope you'll read Yael's story to get the details on all three papers. But in the meantime, here's Messe. I'm personally very excited about the new data. I think uh, it's very encouraging. I think it's you know compelling evidence that PFO closure does reduce the risk of recurrent stroke in selected patients. And uh, I don't think it, these studies are discordant from the prior studies, at least with the prior implanter studies, which were also strongly suggestive. But uh, you know, with that in mind, now we have the two implanter studies and this longer-term follow-up from RESPECT, which continues to go in the right direction, albeit gradually, and then two additional randomized studies, which both show you know, very meaningful reductions in stroke risk. I think that the evidence is very compelling. And, and you know, for me personally, it's going to change my practice that I think in select patients where I think the PFO was the likely problem, I'm definitely going to recommend closure. And I expect that practice will change uh, for many people in that direction. And I still feel strongly that there's a high risk for, for uh, not abuse, but misuse of this, these devices. And that many patients, in fact, the vast majority of patients who have a stroke and have a PFO, that PFO is an innocent bystander. I myself spent some of the last few days of September at London Valves soaking up as much as I could about new percutaneous approaches for treating structural heart disease. I've rambled on long enough here today. If you want to know what I had to say from London Valves, you'll have to read about it in print. All the stories I filed from London or I'm bringing home in my suitcase, as well as the news from Viva, ESC, and more, can be found, as I've said, under the Conferences tab on TCTMD's homepage. We've actually been revamping the Conferences section on the website, as well as the Topics pages. Please have a poke around online and let us know what you think. And speaking of conferences, TCT 2017 is just around the corner. I'll be at TCT, of course, along with the whole editorial team, and I hope to see many of you there. I've never spent any time in Denver, but word has it there are some awesome trails to explore a mere 30 minutes drive from the convention center. True story? If I can tear myself away from the press room during daylight hours, I'd love to find out. Seems unlikely, but here's hoping. I'd also love to hear from you. If you are presenting something in this year's program that I should know about, or hoping to see us cover a particular trial or session, let me know. Find me via my bio on TCTMD, or on Twitter as Shellywood2. We also capture all the audio for our other two podcasts at TCT each year. These are Talking Points and TCT Radio. I hope you subscribe to all three of our channels to keep up on news and views in this space. Thanks for tuning in to Heart Sounds. See you in October.
TCT 2017 in Denver, Colorado is only four weeks away. There's still time to register, so if you haven't done so, please visit www.crf.org tct to register today. We hope to see you there.